If you have an individual and you want to offer them some new capabilities of a firm, you should always try to offer based on what is best for the client, not based on your profit margin. Stand by. I'll be right there. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue. Today is Sunday, the 5th of January, 2020, and welcome to the first podcast of the new decade, episode number 354. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast. And let me say how grateful I am for your choosing to take the time out of your busy schedule for the listen. Quickly, a shout out and thanks for putting up a review of this show to Terry in Fairhope. This week's interview is very exciting. It's with Alan Treffler who's founder and CEO of the publicly traded Pegasystems, a leader in cloud software for customer engagement and operational excellence, which he founded in 1983. In this podcast with Alan, we discuss the founder's story, Pega's mission, the state of AI, Pega's focus on empathy in its CRM solution, the challenges of measuring empathy, and the transformation path that Pega is leading its clients on, a most stimulating conversation. Alan, thanks so much for coming on the Minter Dialogue. Great to get you on the show. We met uh, back in Las Vegas. You are the CEO and founder of this amazing organization called Pegasystems. And I want to start off by just drilling back a little bit and asking you, to what extent do you think there is a link between computer science and chess? Well, you know, it's funny because at least in my personal life, there was quite a link because the way I got into computers in a serious way was um, as a sophomore in college, I won a major international tournament. And I was recruited in to uh, help teach computers how a chess master thought. And uh, that really was my introduction to computers and has turned into a wonderful career. Well, I'm ever hopeful that there is a link because my son, Oscar, uh, is learning coding and loves chess. So. <laughs> um, well, I think, there is. I think that uh, chess has a combination of a, a logical way of thinking through choices, but also a lot of pattern recognition, which is, I think, the sort of fundamental thing that when somebody steps up to a board, um, that's what they start with. And, you know, if you think about where AI is going, it really is a combination of pattern recognition and then more detailed analysis. So I think you'll find it will stand him in good stead. So you started Pega quite a while ago, and I was reading on your Wikipedia page, essentially, that your vision was to make it simpler for business people to manage machines. You had a little bit more of a, a more, I would say, elegant way of talking about metaphors and all this. But do you think that today you're actually closer to it? Because you said at the time it was, it's rather difficult to make that happen. Yeah, I think um, two things have happened. One, I think we've gotten really closer to that as a goal. And two, I think the industry, sadly, has operated in the completely wrong direction. You know, when I did this, and remember this was the 80s, computers were getting faster. And it looked to make sense to try to move the way we instructed them as to what we wanted to do and and what we wanted to achieve. It it looked like it made sense to try to come up with metaphors, come up with ways that a person could more naturally um, instruct the computer than having to write arcane computer code. Um, What's happened in the industry is the computer code has actually gotten even more arcane, more complicated, hundreds of computer programming languages. 
where this is the only industry I know where the technology has gone down the route of increased complexity as opposed to simplification and inclusion of its users. And that's what we're out to change. Well, I mean, on top of that, I mean, notwithstanding the element of AI, the world for managers or people in business has become... I mean, radically more complex because of the number of different types of technologies, notwithstanding just this choice of different languages within AI. And so they're sort of being bombarded by a complete, complete change of mindset in the business. Yeah, and it's not going to get easier. I think people sometimes have fallen into the trap of thinking that all they need to do is stick stuff in the cloud and it will become easier to digest. Now, cloud is a lot going for it, but it actually makes your life more complicated in certain ways. Because if you're in a business, you might find that suddenly you have to go to 5, 8, 20 cloud-based systems to get your work done, as opposed to being able to have the computer, well, help organize around your objectives. You're organizing around the manifestations of how systems have been implemented. And I, you know, we think at PEGA, that really needs to change. So you've been around, you know, without trying to mention your age, Alan, but basically from the beginning of AI. And I mean, so have I, but you know, none of neither of us was actually fiddling at the very beginning. And so we could say it's been around for a while, but where do you think we sit in terms of trajectory? Are we still at the beginning, the middle? How, how would you describe the state of AI as we sit today in business? I think it's in the early middle. I think problems have been um, identified for which AI or things that masquerade as AI, uh, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, uh, are able to actually be constructively used every day. You know, as simply as when you type into Google your search terms and it magically completes them or, or tries to identify what you're most interested in. Um, you know, arguably that is not really AI in the true sense, but it passes for making the machines friendlier and easier to use and there's a lot of that around, whether you're talking to a smart speaker, whether you're doing uh, you know, some form of pattern recognition, but you're, you're really seeing a bunch of it uh, come into the mainstream. Though still, as I said, early middle. A lot of people don't even know that they're interacting with AI yet. They're st- still, I mean, it's still somewhat obscure to many people. It's the magic underneath, but there's a, there's a whole lot of education that still needs to go on. Uh, there is. And there are risks as, as AI and as technology itself continues to evolve. Um, there are dangers that will be used in ways that deprive us of privacy. You know, some of the writing you've done, I think, is very on point in terms of, of identifying some of the exposures. And I think people are a little naive about whether you can put these genies back in the bottle once they've been let out. <laughs> I was asked recently to comment about the idea of having a chief artificial intelligence officer in, in the business. And I was wondering, you as a CEO at PEGA, how would you describe the amount of AI that you have to deal with? You know, if you had like a, it was a, it was a person or a resource, how would you go about saying, well, it's this important to me? Well, you know, so we're in the business. So it's pretty natural in our firm to have lots of folks who uh, are really both aware and thinking of and 
trying to make sure that the AI that we're putting into our systems is um, is used for good and not not evil. I I think any commercial company that is uh, going to be using, for example, some of these techniques to decide who gets a loan or to decide um, whether a transaction is potentially fraudulent or not, needs to be very careful to make sure that there is somebody who is uh, able to look after that and have to understand it. I'm not sure they have to uh, you know, be a, uh, a chief artificial intelligence officer, which is an interesting acronym, but yes. I think that uh, you, do, you do need to have people who are definitely aware of what some of the unintended consequences of the use of AI can be, because uh, particularly in this stage, uh, you can get uh, swarms or, or of bad publicity or worse, or fines from things that, that people perhaps entered into innocently. So on that point, Alan, when you're dealing with a large organization as yours, how does one as a CEO stay on top of what's happening in the machine? Because at some level, you know, you've got coders, you know, obviously you're so much more into it, but and it's even more hard for you to really be on top of, of how it's doing good and, and how do you how do you manage that goodness, if you will, deep down into your organization? Well, I think the, the way you, you start is by having uh, hiring standards and, and cultural standards that encourage goodness in a, in a genuine way and that uh, you make sure that the people who are working on this understand the principles of privacy, understand that our customers' data needs to be considered sacred. And, you know, those are, are really important values to, uh, to put into an organization. Yeah, we're, we're reasonably sized. We're 5,400 staff, um, so far from tiny. But I find that um, when we come together as a firm and we talk about what we want to do, there's really very good alignment around how technology and AI should be used um, and how to do it in an um, ethical and uh, uh, still an effective way. And do you use third parties at all in any of your coding, or are you entirely self-dependent on, I mean, self-dependent on uh, your coding needs in AI? Well, we, we periodically will um, acquire or use with care um, some open source elements, but our AI core was, uh, has been historically developed by, by Pega. It's the, the secret sauce that sits inside of our ability to both decide what work needs to be done and do it, which fundamentally is what we're trying to bring to the market. So now the thing that brought us together, Alan, is this topic of empathy, which is clearly, I would say, which you and Pega are clearly at the forefront of with it when it comes to AI. And I'd love it if you could explain to us how you made that decision. Yeah, we were very disturbed when we saw how some elements of AI were going because as the technology has gotten um, faster and, and smarter and the amount of data that's available has become more voluminous, it's uh, easy, as we've seen, for people to accidentally do things that introduce, for example, bias into decisions. Um, there's a, a lot of statistical evidence that even without explicitly asking a biased question, like asking a question about a gender or race, 
that, that might obviously lead to a biased decision of one type. By asking associated or secondary questions, you can actually introduce bias into models. And so this idea of um, what we call a transparency switch, which allows you to say that for this problem, the AI must truly be able to explain how it came to a decision, um, is absolutely critical, we think, and was just part of, um, of our DNA. And I know you've uh, spoken um, with uh, Dr. Rob Walker, um, who is a real thought leader, leader in this space, and it's been a great privilege to work with him over the last nine years as we've built up and, and continue to enhance this vision of transparency and ethics. I, no doubt. I've enjoyed many of my conversations with Rob, and he was a great resource for me in my research. But I was wondering about this the, the moment, Alan, when there was that light switch. You said the transparency switch, but this light switch when you said, we're, we're going to make this it. This Because, I mean, that's the way I interpret it, of course. There's, there's there are many things that go into what you do at PEGA, but that that strong affirmation of the need to measure empathy in the interactions and the way that the AI is being used. Did you, was there a moment where you're like, you know, over a chess game or a nice cup of, you know, a bottle of whiskey or something, that that moment just snapped, right, this is what we've got to do? Well, I think it, a lot of it came from our team who works full time on this. Um, Rob and, and the other thought leaders that he works with, uh, uh, out of Amsterdam and around the world, they, uh, they they basically said, you know, we see a lot of this AI and we see a lot of the data analytics and the, the way people are doing things. We see some of that is actually pretty troubling. And we should make a different bet and go a different way. And it was interesting because this was before um, a lot of the Facebook scandals and a lot of the issues uh, around how data is used and misused to target people, which is a, a classic example of, of uh, you know, supporting unethical behavior by being able to use the data you have around folks. And so they said, we should really try to go a different way. And so we were early to this and have been really working hard on this for over five years now. It just makes me think, Alan, why don't we have, you, you know, Facebook hire you <laughs> to clean up the communications that they do? Uh, you know, I, I, I think we'll leave it to them to figure out how they move out of the uh, current problems they persist in having. Oh, you know, I, I, I think when you have a business model, and it's not just Facebook that struggles with this, but I think when you have a business model that ultimately says we're going to provide services for free, but in exchange for that, we're going to trade off information about you that perhaps we uniquely have, that that does create a slippery slope um, as it relates to, to privacy. And I think that is something we should be thoughtful about uh, because it's, it's not a very comfortable situation and it's one that can either accidentally or intentionally lend itself to abuse. Yeah, so this notion of business model governance and then you've got the stuff in the machine. And if you don't have the upfront business model governance, maybe attitude mindset upfront, no matter what machine you bring in, it's just not going to be effective. And if you make a troubling analogy, you know, the analogy that I've heard made is that, uh, well, you know, people get free television by subjecting themselves to enormous amounts of advertising on TV. And, you know, that's an advertising model. 
But in reality, what the large companies that traffic in this data are doing is completely different. Because when, when TV is broadcast, it's not tracking my uh, watching behavior in a, in, a, in a detailed way. It's you know, the, the stations that are broadcasting, they don't know, you know that I'm on my couch eating, or perhaps, or, or who else is in the room yet. with me. <laughs> not yet. Well, and that's where, for example, a lot of these smart televisions and a lot of these new uses of AI that can recognize who's in a room, they're going to fall into the same trap. You know, that when you move from broadcast to highly, highly targeted, knowledge-driven or information-driven point-to-point communications, I think that just opens a whole lot of ethical quandaries right off the bat. So one of the things that I get to work on is trying to help top executives change their mindsets and and get with the program of maybe leading from the center, also, of course, onboarding empathy. How how do you go about getting your clients understanding the implications of the cultural changes necessary in order for your system to work the best, or at least their system using yours to work the best? Yeah, so it would be their systems or their environment using ours. One thing we, tr- we try to convey is that we do have a strong respect for the privacy of their data to use it only in, in their interests and under their control and strongly recommend that they show a similar respect for their customer's data um, and, and, and use it where it's really in the interest of the customer versus using it for um, something that might not be primarily in the interest of the customer but might be in their interest. You know, for example, if you have an individual and you want to offer them some new capabilities of a firm, you should always try to offer based on what is best for the client, not based on your profit margin. And those sorts of standards and guidelines, I think, get people doing the right things, um, whether they're using advanced technology or not, frankly. So often I see some systems being put in place and then get blamed for not working. Whereas it's my observation that the issue is actually how they're thinking and, and the way they perhaps treat their employees and or clients that's really at fault. And the system is just a consequence. Do you come up well, against... I think, a, I think there's a combination of things. I think obviously the incentives that are um, given to staff or to the organization as a whole can have lots of unintended consequences. But, you know, the other part of the equation that we focus on is, all right, you're, you're trying to provide people with the right information. You're trying to empower the customer or somebody working with the customer with the what we call next best action, the choice that they should make that is the recommendation of the computer. How do you follow up to find out if that offer was properly given or that if the, if the interaction happened, that the right things came out of it? We are very much into tying great decisions into the process of fulfillment. So, for example, and I you know, hate pointing back to scandals, but we had a, a major account opening scandal. Uh, and in the U.K., you guys have had mis-selling scandals that occurred. And, you know, those are situations where there can be a disconnect between even the intent of the organization, the incentives of the individuals, and being able to make sure that the right thing was followed up on 
that the, the recommendation that was made was actually followed with the right sort of audit trail and tracking and, and execution. That sort of end-to-end way of thinking about um, AI and technology in general, where you're not just worried about the decision, but you bring the decision in the context of execution, is the other critical part that we try to bring our clients with our business. That requires a really a full cultural movement, as in the whole company needs to get it. Because we're there at all levels, when we're talking context at that granular level, we're talking about uh, data, again, and ability to read whether somebody has understood or perceived the action, the next best action is the right thing. Well, you, you can, but in some cases, it's, it's not that complicated. I mean, you know, it's not uncommon for organizations to create incentives for people to, for example, sell something or, or offer some type of product. And, and those can be okay, but they're only okay if they have the right control systems around them. You know, the, the bank I was talking about earlier, where people at the end of the day were pounding literally dozens of fake accounts into the system uh, because they had not just incentives that were positive, but they had adverse incentives if they failed to open a certain number of accounts per month. You know, that sort of incentive should never have been there. But the right sort of system tooling would prevent somebody from going and just pounding accounts in when they clearly were not in touch with uh, with those people. You know, some people woke up to discover they had two, three, four extra Visa cards, you know, that they had never applied for. Uh, those sorts of things you can put you can put guardrails and safeguards around the decisions, and I, I think that when you use smart decisions in conjunction with smart process, um, you get something that helps reinforce the organization's values, uh, particularly for organizations at scale. And when when you're introducing Pega into a company that's large. Do you feel that you are inevitably going to be involved in some kind of transformation? Well, you know, it's interesting because I would say in some of our clients, um, they're really involved in what I would describe as immediate improvements. You know, they discover that they have perhaps an opportunity to do something better for a customer, make better offers. They have a control problem, like people are sending emails to each other and stuff is getting lost. And they say, well... You know, we'd really like to see this, what I would describe, improvement achieved. Um, However, we routinely find that once we've done that, uh, they say, hey, we can actually apply this to retool our business more broadly, and we could move into a more transformational program. Of course, there are some that come the other way and and say we just want to transform our business at a high level, and uh, those are always the most exciting ones to deal with, though uh, it it also requires understanding where you're going to apply things because nobody has a patience for journeys of discovery anymore. Um, yeah. Everybody wants to be able to, to learn while doing and while achieving benefit. Yeah, I think it does uh, augur better if you start small, learn, and then scale as opposed to have the big ideal, whereas nobody really gets it and it becomes too tentacular and gargantuan to actually move. Yeah, and goes off in too many directions. That, you know, that's a that's a way where grand ideals, uh, without without the right structure, 
I always say that when we begin a, a project with a client, we should know what day one go live looks like, right? Not maybe the ultimate endpoint, but don't begin things without understanding how it's going to do real good for somebody somewhere. How would you describe your leadership philosophy? You obviously came in young. You were a 27-year-old when you when you became CEO, if I stand correct. And and now you've had many years of, of uh, managing. What would you? How would you describe your leadership style and how it's changed over the years, if it's changed? Yeah, I think um, leaders have to evolve, and obviously, growing from a business and. When I actually started it, I was 26. It was me and you know my my two co-founders uh, that were trying to convince some of the world's largest, in this case, banks, um, to trust us and and allow our systems to come in and work in their operations. Um, the the business now at, at over 5,000 staff is very very different. There are a lot of things though we've really tried to retain. One of the values that I think is most critical is um, to have what I describe as a thought leadership culture. And a a thought leadership culture is one that, if you look at the words, involves thought. And to us, you know, having thoughts is having informed opinions. So it's not enough to have an opinion. Your opinion really needs to be informed. You need to understand what the criteria are, what the consequences are, uh, what others in the team think. And then the second key element is leadership. Um, We operate in a business where certainly with our customers, but often with other parts of our own company, there's not a strict command and control style where the thoughts need to be, well, explained. The other members of the team need to be recruited to buy into what goes on. And I think that that idea of thought leadership, as opposed to the concepts of um, strict command and control or, or other sorts of things, uh, are one of the characteristics that have been great for the firm from both its inception and right through to now. My last question for you, Alan. I'm writing a book on leadership, and and I and I think of the difference it is when the founder is the CEO versus a let's say a, a whether brought up within the company or parachuted in. There's a, a much bigger challenge uh, because you, the DNA. Is, is not there. You are the DNA. My question to you is, to what extent do you feel that your personality is a part of the Pegasus system? And, and to what extent do you want that, don't want it? How do you manage that? Well, I, I think that um, the personality of a founder, um, for better or for worse, as we've seen in some cases, does imprint itself on the organization. But you know, the goal that, that I've had is to build a sustaining business where it's not just my DNA, but it's the DNA of a lot of other people and a culture where the great ideas can rise to the top and be chosen where um, we collectively understand what's good and what's bad. We sometimes talk about knowing what great looks like. And that's something that I don't think any individual uh, is able to do uniquely as well as a team of individuals or a team of coworkers can do. So I really um, am, am hopeful that the collective DNA of PEGA both now and as it goes forward is, uh, is much richer than that of mine alone. And, and that is my mission in uh, you know, being the founder of the company. 
And uh, I haven't actually run the company day to day. I took five years to go work in the engine room um, and brought in some other leadership to run it. And uh, I actually think we did really well both in that environment and since I retook operating control uh, about 15 years ago. One word for 2020? Uh, I think 2020 is going to be dynamic. I think we're going to see lots of uh, change in the uh, political realm, in the in the financial realm. I think it's, uh, it's going to be a very, you know what they say, may you live in interesting times. Yeah. We certainly are. <laughs> yeah, I, and that's for people who are already thinking, oh my gosh, this year is crazy. Next year, think for more. Yeah, I don't think we've seen, I, I think I think next year between the uh, varieties of, of um, you know, political challenges that we see around the world um, and the fact that, you know, the expansion that we're in, is one that's gone on for in the U.S. a record time, and uh, you know the good thing about having been around for as long as we have is we've seen the variety of economic cycles that come on, and we know how to I think do really well in all of them. It will be interesting to see what what happens to some of these unicorns um, when they get pressure tested by well, you know the inevitably cycle by of reality. Yeah, <laughs> Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to have you. Tell us how anyone can look up more, follow you. What, what's the best way to, to know more? Well, uh, www, um I think has a lot of terrific resources, including some very, very good thought leadership pieces. And if you go to the Pega World section, um, you can see people like Rob Walker and me talking about what we think makes a real, real difference um, in the application of AI and in the way that businesses should be run. Well, here's to making businesses do good uh, using empathy. Alan, thanks again. Thank you. I've enjoyed this very much. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
challenge so life's not incomplete what's wrong with challenge i know soon we all die i like the feel of a stranger tucked around me precipitating the danger to feel free trust in my reason and let me show you why My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.